Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. A coincidental meeting between local publisher and poet Gillian Bickley and a man living in Chile resulted in a long-distance collaboration on the diary and letters of his late father, who was a prisoner of war in the Second World War in Hong Kong. In the book, In Time of War, Henry Collingwood Selby not only documented his time here, he also happened to be a very descriptive writer who showed great resilience. I met the editor of this book at a dinner organised by the English-speaking union at its conference in Edinburgh. And when, when he knew we were from Hong Kong, he said, Oh, my father was a prisoner of war in Hong Kong. And my immediate response was, did he write anything? Well, Richard Collingwood Selby thought, no, 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 his father hadn't written anything. But I said, well, you have a look when you get back home. You have a look. And he did have a look. And he discovered that there was, in fact, a trunk in an attic belonging to his cousin, who had taken the materials, I suppose, after the writer had died. And uh, over time, Richard kept on finding more and more materials. So, so at first it was essays written by his father about his time with the, Mar the Chinese Maritime Customs Service. Quite very interesting essays, inclu including a description of the Japanese occupation of China when he, his uh, head became a Japanese. And so when he needed to ask for leave or something like that, it was to a Japanese person. And so over time, over several years, and many hundreds of emails both ways, he found a considerable body of material, including diaries. And it seems his father kept a diary religiously every day of his life. But of course, this can't be, quite be true because a baby couldn't keep a diary. So I don't actually know when he began to do that. But very fortunately for those interested in Hong Kong history, there, there, there are complete diaries of the time when he was in Hong Kong. Now, Henry Collingwood Selby always romanticised about a career in the Royal Navy. Right. That's true. And he did take part in the Great War at the very, very end of the Great War. But then he was decommissioned and tried to find the best substitute he could and joined as I mentioned, the Chinese Maritime Customs Service, which was mainly, as I understand, staffed by Europeans. I think he was for 16 years in that service. Um, his son says, well, it was a long way from the sea, because he was uh, by the Yangtze River, but maybe the Yangtze is such a huge river that one could perhaps think it was an inland sea. A few interesting photographs his colleagues in the Chinese Customs Service, a photograph of his clerk and wife, a photograph of a light keeper and his little daughter, and there are also some very interesting crayon drawings, mainly of his time, I think, with the Chinese Maritime Customs Service, which Richard, the son, thinks were done for them, the two boys. 
and so the style is perhaps addressed to children, but nevertheless, it, it is extremely interesting, very interesting information in the drawings. It, it seems that when, uh, when the British authorities knew that war was approaching, they looked for people who'd been in the Navy before and told them that they needed to resume active service. Henry Collingwood Selby came from China, the mainland to Hong Kong to rejoin the Royal Navy. So in Hong Kong, he was put in charge of a mine layer, HMS Red Start, and there are some, dis some descriptions of going out and uh, dealing with mines. It must have been very dangerous, but he doesn't ever express that. Now his wife and the two sons had already gone back to the UK in 1935. Um, so as uh, the Japanese invasion occurred in December 1941, you said that uh, he was wounded um, in his hand. Um, and um, that was interesting how this, this walking stick that had helped him along for his hiking also uh, proved to be invaluable at that moment. Yes. So his, his son makes a great point of that walking stick because it deflected one of the bullets that was fired at his father and so perhaps saved his life. Now, after the fall of Hong Kong, as you say, he had been wounded, so there are accounts of uh, his hospitalisation. Um, but uh, subsequent to that, he was then put in Argyle Street prisoner of yes. war camp. He was in three prisoner of war, war camps. He was in North Point, then Argyle Street, then Shamshi Po. And he was very reluctant to leave Argyle Street because he thought, thought it was, would be better than Shamshri Po. And having moved to Shamshri Po, his opinion was confirmed. But other of the prisoners of war felt differently. In Argyle Street, is also, um, he is able to have some views. So um, he's able to see countryside from, from where he is. And he's worried about the, 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 the bricks and the built-up... Uh, element of the, of the district of, yes. of Shamshi Po that he's uh, about to move into. But I, I mean coincidentally this Royal Navy this man who dreamed of being in the Royal Navy all his life and then life took a, a different turn. Yes. He ends up uh, working in China and then is interned here. It's interesting that he is a very good writer. Indeed yes. So it's not just a, a chronology some of the essays or some of the texts of talks he gave are extremely readable and the, uh, the tone of voice he adopts towards the listeners or the reader is very affable, very appropriate. I mean, we do know that in the prison of war camps in Hong Kong, people did give, give talks, perhaps not quite, quite a way of entertainment, but a way of occupying time and providing some interest and, and appearance of normality. And for one of his talks, he apologizes that the subject was partly covered by a previous speaker, but he hoped, but he hoped that his listeners would forgive him. Yes, the very, very, very interesting stories about journeys made and the, uh, the capture of where he was based in China by the Japanese. Christmas Day, 1942. There wasn't room for much tea, just a piece of bread and butter. We had a double whack of bread and a wedge of Peninsula Hotel ice cake given me by Cyril. 
The inhabitants of one end of Number Eight Hut had a marvelous dinner party in the evening. Blankets were rigged to screen in their long table, and all was decorated. The table was lit with candle lamps with most attractive shades. Wine glasses and cruet sets were made from the small containers in Red Cross parcels, and there were caricature place cards and proper menu cards. The diners all wore most ingeniously made paper hats. The bakery and galley staffs did excellent work. Relays of bakers were busy throughout the whole night, making up and baking special orders. While in the galley, hundreds of eggs and tins were boiled. At 8:30, there was a carol singing, followed by community singing in this hut. I stood outside the window to enjoy the familiar tunes under the stars. A very cheery finish to the day, which has very markedly raised the spirits. He certainly does put an emphasis on physical exercise. At one point, he reckons that he's probably walked about two thousand miles within the camp, and uh, he also um, does. He in the morning um, there, there's an opportunity to, to grind beans.、Uh, some people found the beans unpalatable, so grinding them down at least provided some form of protein. And、uh, he's, he's, he, va- he welcomes that because it's a, an opportunity to exercise his upper torso and, and arms.、Uh, but generally, as with other prisoner of war accounts that I've read, there's a great emphasis on food because、yes. of the, the malnu- well basic malnutrition that's going on.、Uh, there's a very interesting section called Red Cross Parcels. When there was、uh, several pages, there's a rumour that Red Cross parcels have arrived. There's a, there's a rumor that they contain X Y Z, and it, there's sort of an hour by hour account confirming or denying the rumor until finally, yes, some parcels come. February 1945, Mr. Sadio Iguchi, spokesman of the Board of Information, in the course of a foreign press conference yesterday, revealed that the relief supplies. Will be distributed as soon and as widely as possible, not only in Japan but in China and the southern regions as well. February the 20th. Now these parcels, American, are said to weigh 28 pounds and contain five pounds of clothing, pipe and tobacco, but the milk is condensed.、Uh, Wednesday the 21st. Working parties have been detailed for Sunday for unloading parcels. So it goes on and on. Um, and then people saying, "Is the working party back yet? Any rumours? Not a whisper. The working party must have gone out to dig gardens, I expect. Well, here we are. The parcels come. So on Saturday, without a date, noon, in block letters, they're in. Very travel-worn-looking packages of British. 1942 parcels, many very wet and seemingly ex-code storage, an American case or so of YMCA books, and ditto sundries such as a few boots, toilet gear, etc. One parcel was issued before tiffin. Apprehensively, one opens the damp package, and the chocolate was in quite passable condition. <laughs> Now the contents of the parcels. The parcels contained one apple pudding, one curried mutton, one creamed rice, one galantine, one tomatoes. One tomato. How many tomatoes? One bacon, half a pound golden syrup, tea, soap, four ounces sugar, biscuits, chocolate, half a pound margarine, cowed gate cheese, condensed milk. Yes, it does show just how. 
awful circumstances were because the actual the daily meals i mean he is he does describe three meals a day if you can in, in inverted commas in the sense that uh you know you have this, this sort of rice rice congee milk uh and then uh, occasionally he's, he is able to put bran into it um, to, to, to bolster it up a bit. But uh, too much carbohydrate in the form of, of rice and not much else and a bit of veg. May the 5th, 1944. Next, a visit to the cobbler shop to beg some scraps of motor tyre. And with these, I proceeded to put my invaluable clogs into good repair. Someone now pointed out the remarkable halo around the sun. Foreboding typhoon? It was time to get ready for tiffin, a mug of rice, another of marrow sauce, plus my sweet potato steamed in a bag, and some lettuce and tomatoes from the garden. Not a bad panic in full. This was followed by a little folding of the hands and quiet contemplation. One doesn't feel up to much exertion on POW camp rations. Weighing myself this morning, I found I was only 138 and a half pounds, having lost eight or nine pounds since the rice ration was reduced in March. Normally, I'm 165. Having edited or helped to edit this book, what did you gain about Henry's mentality? He was obviously rather resilient. So a very nice preface by Jay Winter of Harvard comments on the resilience. He says, The inhumanity of armed conflict breaks many men, but not all of them, and certainly not Harry Collingwood Selby. June the 12th, 1945. We hear lack and long for so much, but there's much comfort and consolation to be obtained in cherishing the date tree in our yard. Here on my desk, growing in an old bean tin, is a cardinal creeper, and I've got much enjoyment watching its climb up a bamboo framework and seeing the tiny buds develop into the feathery leaves and crimson stairs. Beside it, in a meat jar vase, I always have a couple of hibiscus blooms with their sturdy staminal columns, the five velvety knots of its pistils and the yellow pollen. My thanks to Gillian Bickley, who helped Richard Collingwood Selby to edit the accounts of his father Henry in the book In Time of War, published by Proverse Hong Kong. My thanks also to RTHK's Tom McAlinden for providing the voice for the diary excerpts. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.